you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Come on! Uh, Get in there, Maverick! It's no good. Cornelius and I have been indicted for heresy. It is evil. It is so evil. It is a bad, bad plan. You know, no matter how many times I hear that intro and I listen to it every single time we do this episode because I like to get a good laugh at it. I never get used to it, and all it makes me think of is, I need music for when Lou and I get together. Hopefully, I will get to work on that as we get some more episodes done in the future. But instead, you get me today, and you know by that intro that it means we're discussing the the infamous of the church history. And I have come to you this week to tell you that if you can explain God, you do not understand God. And that's going to be a lesson we're going to hopefully figure out as we work through. So today we get a look at perhaps the most notorious heretic in church history. A man so entrenched in biblical heteroxy that even the man who would be Santa punched him in the face. Yes, Santa punched this man in the face. And while that story may or may not have happened, I will let you look up the the story of Nicholas and the Council of Nicaea yourself and have fun with that. Excuse me. It does serve to illustrate the the illicit fame of today's subject, the one, the only, the Arius. Now, he was born in Ptolemais, which is now modern-day Libya, sometime around 256, and he died under, well, we're going to say interesting circumstances that we're going to cover in a few minutes in 338 in the city of Constantinople, which, as you know from the song, is now it's Istanbul, the Constantinople, and it's Istanbul, and the Constantinople. And if you have no idea what that song is, then we can't be friends, and you need to go look it up. It's a good song. You'll enjoy it. <clears throat> Now, in between those two little dates, the dash that we are concerned with, Arius was a a presbyter, he was an ascetic, he was a priest, and by all historical accounts, all in all, was a devoted teacher of theology. It just depends on what you thought of that theology as to whether or not that was a good thing or not. Now, Arius was a controversial figure for the majority of his ministry, mainly owing to associations, stances, teachings. I mean, this guy just had a knack for finding a a controversy and stepping into it. He was one of the forerunners of the uh, later Donatist controversy, as he apparently signed up with Malicious, or Melitius, if you would prefer. I don't care which one you want to go with. Enjoy it. Who was from Lycopolis, which is an awesome city name. We need more cities named Lycopolis in the world. And as a result of this and other stances throughout his life, Arius was excommunicated from and reinstated to the church uh, several times during his life. You know, he was in, he's out as like a bad game of hokey pokey, apparently. I mean, even... Excuse me. Even this guy's death is controversial because depending on which side of the fight you're on, he was either murdered by his opponents or he was righteously judged and killed by God. And you might be going, what? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Socrates Scholasticus, which is an awesome name. One of these days I aspire to have a name as awesome as Socrates Scholasticus. In his church history, uh, chapter 38, where he's recording the, uh, the turn of the 3rd century there, he records it as this. It was then Saturday, and Arius was expecting to assemble with the church on the following day. 
But divine retribution overtook his daring criminalities, for going out of the imperial palace, attended by a crowd of Eusebian partisans like guards, he paraded proudly through the midst of the city, attracting the notice of all the people. And as he approached the place called Constantine's Forum, where the column of porphyry were erected, a terror arising from the remorse of conscience seized Arius, and with the terror of violent relaxation of the bowels, that is never good, he therefore inquired whether therein there was a convenient place near, and being directed to go to the back of Constantine's form, he hastened thither. We need more thithers in the world. Soon after, a faintness came over him, and together with the evacuations his bowels protruded, following by a copious hemorrhage and the descent of the smaller intestines. Moreover, portions of his spleen and liver were brought off in the effusion of blood, so that he almost died immediately. The scene of this catastrophe still is shown at Constantinople, as I have said, behind the shambles in the colonnade, and by persons going by pointing the finger at the place, there is perpetual remembrance preserved of this extraordinary kind of death. You can see why this is either the, the judgment of God or he was poisoned. Either way, ugh. now, what teaching could possibly lead to this kind of animus and division? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. You ask amazing questions. Keep up the good work. Now, the easiest way to catalog Arius' teachings would be to quote him directly. But in order to do that, we have to rely on his opponents because most of what Arius wrote was either burned or destroyed by uh, various purges of Orthodox believers and teachers after his death and even during his ministry, depending on who was in charge at the time. Excuse me. Now, the quality of summation of the Arian teaching appears to be this. If the father begat the son, he that was begotten had a beginning of existence. And from this it is evident that there was a time when the son was not. It therefore necess necessarily follows that he, the son, had his substance from nothing. You're going, okay, dude, English, English, please. All right. The son, who is Jesus, had a beginning. That is the earth-shattering teaching of Arius. Now, if you follow that out, that means Jesus is therefore not eternal, which means his substance and being is something other than God. Now, why would that view be considered heretical? Hmm. I'll take silly questions for a thousand, Alex. All right. For starters, Arius's teaching presents an aberrant view of Christ himself. The reason we call this aberrant is because it rejects the biblical testimony and infers a logical definition based upon human categories of existence and being. See, I think Arius is attempting to formulate a logical definition of Christ. And while that may sound good, spoiler alert, dude, it isn't. Now, the reason why I say that is I truly believe Arius sought to be faithful. I mean, the, the dude had a concern and a care, despite what his distract, detractors say. Uh, apparently, a letter to Eusebius of Nicomedia says this. Some of them say, and by the way, this is a letter from Arius. Some of them say that the son is an eructation. That, that's a burp. Others, that he is a production. Others, that he is unbegotten. These are impieties to which we cannot listen, even though the heretics threaten us with a thousand deaths. But we say and believe and have taught and do teach that the Son is not unbegotten, 
nor in any way part of the unbegotten, that he does not derive his substance from any matter, but that by his own will and counsel he has subsisted before time and before ages as perfect as God, only begotten and unchangeable. And that before he was begotten or created or purposed or established, he was not, for he was not unbegotten. For we are persecuted because we say that the Son has a beginning, but that God is without beginning. And you can clearly see that there's a distinction in Arian theology between the Father and the Son. But you can also hear the passion with which Arius taught and believed. I mean, this is a guy who believes what he's saying. Now, catch this here. This is not a man who has forsaken God. It's a man who has forsaken godly definitions based upon Scripture alone. What I mean by that is his definitions are not scriptural, even though he thinks he is being scriptural in his definitions. And yes, I know that's confusing. We're going to make sense of it as we go. Arius is a heretic because he has moved his foundation away from the word of God to some other source. What is the testimony of Christ then? According to scripture, that makes Arius' view of Jesus a sub-biblical one. See, that's the question we've got to answer in order to say that Arius is a heretic. So for starters, Jesus and God are one and the same. Why do I say that? Because John 1.1 1, 1 says that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And extended, I'm sorry, and extended, and extending from really that point throughout the entire first chapter of the Gospel of John, John is making this point. And he gives you this, his, um, his thesis statement, John does, in chapter 20 of his Gospel, that you would know and that you would believe. Now, know what specifically? The proof that John is offering, which is what? The deity of Christ. This is why John's gospel is presented the way that it is and why it's so different from the synoptics. We already have the synoptics when John is written. John is making another point. He's presenting a proof to a burgeoning Gnostic heresy, see past episodes of the Heretics podcast, and to a world that is going to be devoid of a physical apostolic witness that will then rely on a written apostolic witness. So chapter 1, you get proof of the deity. Uh, chapter 2, you get the, uh, the continued proof and declaration of this. In chapter 3, you get an exposition of this between the conversation with Nicodemus and John's uh, commentary on it at the end of the chapter. You get the dominion displayed in chapter 4. You get the testimony of these truths in chapter 5, especially at the end of the chapter where Jesus goes through all the proofs of what he is saying. And you get demonstration of the power in chapter 6 with the meal and the crowds and then eventually wandering away because they do not want the truth. This track continues all the way on into the end of the book. I mean, take uh, 8, 58, and 59 in John 10, 31. You get the same outcome in both situations because the people understood what Jesus was claiming. They're going to kill him. They're going to stone him for blasphemy. Why? What was the blasphemy? That Jesus is claiming of equality with God, power, and authority is in alignment with who he is. See, he is the I am. This is why you have all the I am statements in John. He is God incarnate. This is why you have the power to create, the power to command creation on display, including the power over life and death demonstrated in John 11. He has the power to teach. You see this in the, in the temple. You see this in the cleansing. You see this in all of Jesus' work. John is making a point. Arius is denying this and using a different category to define Christ. He's reading in the wrong direction. So he's taking the one verse of 316 that Jesus is the only begotten son 
and he is making that a statement of nature rather than a statement of action. And then he is inferring all of the biblical data through that natural argument. Now, Arius and his teaching and his influence is the reason the Council of Nicaea was ultimately called. And if you'd like more, again, you can dig through our uh, church history section of the theological journal that we put out every month, and you can find out more information. By the way, I'm trying to get that out for this month, sooner than later, as soon as we get everything together. I promise we're going to get it out soon, 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 I promise. Now, they get together so that they can refute this and put the hopefully the final nail in the coffin of Arius. Unfortunately, they didn't. They, I mean, they did a good job, but it doesn't put the final nail in the coffin because heretics be hereticking, yo. So the, Nice, the, the, the Nicene Creed, Later on is amended by the Council of Constantinople in 381, but the core of the 325 creed was left intact and unaltered. I, I point this out because I don't ever want to read this and then have you go, well, that's not how it's written in my hymnal or how my church says it every week, because I know there are churches that say these things every week. And the reason it's not the same is because of the Council of Constantinople in 381. That's actually where what we say and read as the Nicene Creed today was finally formulated. What I'm talking about is not the Nicene Creed as we have it, but the Nicene Declaration as it was originally given to refute Arianism. So what did they say? That they believe in a couple of things, and we're going to skip down. One Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, and they further declared, those who say there was a time when he, talking about the Son, was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created, or changeable, or, alter, or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic, that's universal, and apostolic church. They were serious about this. They are refuting Arianism because... Arianism is refuted by scripture. I mean, case in point, writing at the end of his life and career as an apostle, Peter, in his second letter, so Second Peter, in the introduction to this letter, he, he's grounded in the truth of Jesus and his identity. Peter calls Jesus God and Savior in 1.1. One, one. He equates Jesus with God in verse 2. He concludes his introductory sentence in verse 3 by proclaiming Jesus as having his own divine power that has been granted to believers through the knowledge of Jesus. Now, if there's ever a point that you're going to wander away from something, you would think the end of your life would be the time when you could do it. Peter's not. Not only is Peter not wandering away, he is grounding his teaching all the more so in Christ at the end of his life, knowing that persecution has come, is coming, and will be completed, knowing that he will be gone. Again, John, writing at the end of his life, composes a gospel to make what point? That Jesus is God. Unmistakable. This is something else we want to make sure we're very clear on. We want to make sure we get our orders right because we don't want to fall into the trap that Arius fell into as we're explaining this. Nicaea is orthodox, not because it is the Council of Nicaea, but because it is a faithful and a consistent declaration of biblical truth. Arius is a heretic not because he rejects the Council of Nicaea, but because he rejects the clear biblical truth contained within the Nicene formulation of the revelation of God found in Scripture. This is important, and this leads us to how we should refute this heretical idea. 
we want to build foundations. Our starting point in all of this, not some of this, mind you, all of this. The reason we're doing a series of podcasts on heretics, one, because history is fun, I'm weird like that, but two, Historical theology matters and is appropriate because there is nothing new under the sun. But even three, we want to build up and upon a biblical worldview. How do we do that? We do that by grounding our brains and disciplining, I know that's a dirty word in the modern world, disciplining our brains to think foundationally, to get back to first things, the a priori foundations of existence, as the, uh, as the Latin and logic would put it, which would also be a good time to plug our last apologetics and theology uh, podcast where Lou and I actually walked through a little bit of first things and how we deal with the world foundationally. This is what we want to train our brains. We want to follow the wisdom in godly counsel of 2 Corinthians 10. We want to bring every thought, every idea to the foot of Christ in obedience and submission. That means we take the wisdom of the world, we ball it up into a nice pretty little ball, and we chuck that puppy out the window. We do not wish to be wise in our own eyes, which means when we eschew worldly wisdom, we are eschewing our own wisdom as well. Which means, catch this, our starting point is, was, forever should, and hopefully forever will be informed by Scripture not the other way around. I think this is where Arius went off the rails, is he's reading this and he's understanding that the Son is begotten. And again, he's making that a statement of nature, which means he's reading the rest of the Bible through that idea rather than reading that idea through the rest of the Bible. So this is the catastrophe that uh, Arius falls into. He's trying to explain and understand God and Christ. (laughs) That never ends well. So once again, what's our fundamental question? Who is Christ? He is the one who was and is and forever will be equal to God, who but for a time emptied himself in obedience to the plan of God. This is your Philippians 2, 5 through 11 in action. So... This is an example I think we used um, with the Valentin, the Valentinians? That are the Docetists, but I don't know. You know what? Just read the old podcast. Listen to the old podcast or read the write-ups on the website. It'll do you good. All right. The redemptive plan of Yahweh required one of the persons of Yahweh. So Yahweh is the name of God. The Father is Yahweh. The Son, Jesus, is Yahweh. The Spirit is Yahweh. But they are different, the Father, Son, and Spirit. They are different persons. So the redemptive plan of God, the redemptive plan of Yahweh, required one of the persons of Yahweh, in this case Jesus, who is the Son, to be obedient and dependent upon the other persons of Yahweh, namely the Father to execute the plan and the Holy Spirit to implement and empower the plan. This is what you see in the uh, baptismal formula not the, I'm sorry, not the formula, the baptismal function of Jesus when he is baptized, is you have the Son acting in obedience to the plan that he as a person of Yahweh has inaugurated. You see the Father directing and ordering the plan, and you see the Spirit empowering the plan. All three persons are Yahweh but they are all different and distinct from one another. That is why Jesus is said to be fully God and fully man. And look, 
I don't say that because I'm comfortable with it or even because I really understand it. I say it because that's how the Bible portrays God. <sighs> and ultimately, I am dependent upon my biblical definitions to teach them, not the other way around. Now, Jesus undoubtedly claims divine authority. We've met, we mentioned this before. Just read the Gospel of John. It will do you good. But he also further claims it, places like Revelation 1.8, where he is and was and is to come type of thing. Not because Jesus is being divisive. He's doing this because it is true. He is God. Again, this is the point of Peter's uh, first sermon. Pentecost 2. We know Yahweh approved of Jesus. How do we know that? How? how? How do you know that? You get that finger wag going, you know, how do you know that? Well, this is Peter's point. You know it because Jesus came out of the tomb. I mean, if Jesus was a fraud and a liar and was not one with God, then God would have left him there. Yahweh would have forsaken the man Jesus and he would have still been in the ground and we'd have rolled the stone away and he'd have been laying there dead with holes in him. He wasn't. This is proof. Who has power over life and death? God does. Why Jesus used that as a demonstration of his power with the... Uh, the son of the widow in Nain in Luke, with Lazarus in John. He has this power over the, um, what is it, the uh, the centurion's servant, the uh, the official's woman in Matthew and Mark in Luke, I think. That's in all three synoptics, if I'm not mistaken. Why is Jesus using that? Because it's the ultimate proof of God's power. Peter points to this in his Pentecostal sermon. I needed another P in there. It was worth it. As a proof, there's another one, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Now, even beyond the self-designations, we have testimony in the Old Testament. You're going, oh, wait a minute. Don't give me their testimony to Jesus in the Old Testament. Oh, 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 I will. We covered this before, and we probably will cover it again. Go to the Daniel vision. Daniel chapter 7, verse, start around verse 9. The Ancient of Days seated upon his throne. What happens when you get to verse 13? The Son of Man receives the power and dominion of God. And you're going, okay, so God anoints a king. Yes, with his own power and dominion. Isaiah 42, 8 makes it clear. God will not share his glory with another. Therefore, in order for this Son of Man to share the power and dominion of God, he must be capable of wielding and holding this power. In order to wield and hold the power of God, you yourself must be, you guessed it, God. Think through some baseline ones. What king could rule eternally in fulfillment of the promise given to David in 2 Samuel 7.13? Solomon can't. Solomon dies. The king has to reign eternally in order for the line to be permanently upheld. What king can do that? Only can be Christ. You have part of the promise to Solomon, part of the promise to Christ. What king could bring judgment and wrath against the nations? Well, that's God's job. Well, what does Psalm 2 tell you? Deal with the son. Why? Because he has been enthroned above Zion. He is the one who will shake the nations. He is the one who will fulfill the Daniel 2 vision of the ruling eternal kingdom of God. In order to do that, that king must be God. This is the clear presentation and understanding of Scripture. You can only reject this through one of two things. Either you are ignorant of the teaching of the Bible, podcasts like this are trying to correct that, or you have to go in open-eyed and defy the clear meaning of the text. Meaning you have to reject what Scripture is plainly teaching in order to serve your pet theory, or you just have to reject what Scripture is plainly teaching because you're happier that way. Either way, that's not good. No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's no good. No good. Scripture paints a clear picture. This is Trinitarian theology at work throughout the Old and New Testament. We have one God, 
three persons, which does not make any logical sense. Why not? I'm a finite physical being and I operate in time. I can't make sense of this, but this is the presentation of God in Scripture. Deuteronomy 6.4 tells me what? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet we worship and honor three as we're commanded. Think uh, Matthew 28. What's your uh, great commission? Go therefore into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the name of the Father is Yahweh. The name of the Son is ultimately Yahweh. The name of the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. You are baptizing them in the name of God as he has been revealed in three persons. This is clear. This is your charge. This is what we do. And that matters. Where does the Bible come from? Second Peter 1, uh, verse 21 is where one hallmark. Second Timothy 3, 16 through 17 is the other one. No act of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved. Second uh, Timothy 3, all Scripture is, uh, is God-breathed and is useful for, is inspired, is useful for correcting, uh, teaching, training, correcting, and rebuking, reproving. Anyway, go read Second Timothy 3. It'll do you good. All that to say what? The Bible comes from God. And within that book, there's descriptions, there are discussions, there are stories of beings and ideas that I just, I can't understand. I, I can't understand the being of God. I can't understand the nature of angels. I can't understand the, the idea of a trinity. I, I can't understand it, but it's there. And that's why, as a faithful believer, what is it incumbent on me to do? Study and teach what Scripture presents, not what I think is best. If we fail to do this, we fall into the original trap of Satan. What was his question? Did God really say? Yes. Yes, he did. He did clearly say, and I will not walk the path of the apostates, as the Isaiah 29 in Matthew 15 describes. What was that? Rejected God, and I'm teaching the doctrines of men as if they were God. Why are they doing that? Because they're elevating their thoughts their ideas to that of godliness. Instead, what do I want to do? I want to fix my eyes on the author and perfecter of my faith, like Hebrews 12 tells me, and I want to follow after Christ. Which Christ? Second John matters here. The one that's presented in Scripture. If it is not the Christ presented in Scripture, it is the wrong Jesus. I do not have the Father. I have lost my grace. I have lost any hope of forgiveness, and I am condemned. Do I get it? Well, I hope so. Do I understand it? No. Am I okay with that? Yes. Yes. Why am I okay with that? Because it's marvelous. It's the, it's the immutable God. It's the immaculate Christ. It is the uncontainable majesty of who God is and how he works and that he has saved me and that he is the wonderful one who will complete his work in my life in my mind, in my heart. He will bring me to the day of completion, not because I'm good, but because he's good. Not because I understand him, but because he understands me, my needs, and his provisions. That's why this matters. So, read up on Arius. Go enjoy looking up the story of uh, Nicholas of Myra and see about the punching in the nose. It's a fun little story. I hope it's true. I want it to be true, and I'm just going to hope and, and believe that it is until I'm proven otherwise. So until you get a DeLorean or God tells me I'm wrong, I'm just believing that the guy who we based Santa Claus on popped a heretic right in the face. He was so disgusted with him because it makes me happy that men were men and that 
we stand as Christians in a line of these godly men who fought literally for the truth because it was so important because it was who God is as he's been revealed to us. So if you want to read up more on this, uh, practicaltheologyministries.com. We get the write-up on the Heretics podcast every week so that you can find all the little cross-references I've made mention of and do all the little research yourself. You can read up on past ep- episodes if you don't want to do go to the trouble of listening and downloading and and taking the half an hour and want to read it real quick, you can also, again, sign up for the journal that I mentioned. Give us your email. We'll send it out. I know I've had a couple people sign up in the last couple weeks, and I'm sorry. We're, it's, it's coming. It's coming. I promise. It's coming. It's coming. You can also... Uh, find links to uh, Calvary Baptist in Rockford, which is our church, who, uh, where I pastor, where Lou is a, um, a member, and, we can, and where Daryl is one of our deacons who writes in the newsletter. You can worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 Central Time. We uh, get those broadcasted here. You can download the uh, sermon from the website or view it on YouTube from that calvarybaptistrockford.com. And again, uh, Drop us a line. Well, come worship with us. We'd love to see you. If you have any questions, info at practicaltheologyministries.com. Send them in. We will rip out his fingernails until Lou answers every single one of them. And, and I kid, Lou would actually think that's funny, not having his fingernails ripped out but answering the questions. So if you send them in, we will answer them. If you have suggestions or curiosities about a heretic or an issue of apologetics and theology you would like addressed, let us know. We will try to walk through them, hopefully in a biblical manner, and we can make sense of that. So in the meantime, study up on your history. Uh, know your heretics so that you can refute their evil theology and point people to the truth of the gospel found in Christ. Read your Bible. It'll do you good. God bless.